chapter 12, verse 1. Luke 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Thank you, Mike. Good morning to you. In 2015, just last year, in Somerset, England, there's a story of a young man named Anthony Rudkin who broke into his neighbor's apartment and stole some jewelry and a PlayStation 4 and some other things. He had carefully planned for the burglary. He wore gloves, planned the timing of it. He broke in, he got the things, he left without being seen. But he tipped over a bag of flour in the hallway. And it spilled, and on his way out, he walked through it. (laughs) So while he was back in his apartment, the police who'd come to the door to respond to the burglary saw the tracks and tracked the flower footprints to his front door. And they were able to arrest him, especially once they found the shoes that still had flour on. You know what Rudkin thought about burglary? The people of Jesus' day thought about God. I'm too smart really to be found out. They thought that about the people of their day. They really don't know how I think. And so they put up a front. But the problem is, Jesus lives in Realville, and Jesus made it His purpose, especially now as time is coming, is drawing near to the cross, to affront hypocrisy. And we're going this morning to reach back into chapter 11 and pull some out because the sermon last week, we only dealt with the very beginning in talking about the prayer that Jesus taught. But then he, he gets right into dealing with his hypocrisy of his day. And he, he's calling people out of hypocrisy to a love for truth and authenticity. A trait he himself was qualified to demand because hypocrisy disqualifies people from the kingdom and skews their vision of the glory of God as we talked about this morning. Jesus wants to make sure that everyone in his day in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the uh, uttermost parts of the world, and to our day today, as we have his words revealed in the book, he wants to make sure everyone has the opportunity to know how to properly, truthfully see the world. And that would be through God's eyes. And so he is getting more intense about this. Now, as this happens, he becomes more intensely hated, just as perhaps it might elicit feelings of of a strong response in us if somebody calls us out on fake. So 
be careful for the sermon today because as Jesus is dealing with these, uh, the epitome of hypocrite, uh, hypocrites in his day, he does turn to his disciples in chapter 12 and warn them about hypocrisy. And this scripture reading Mike read is the bridge where, where he turned and said to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So we would like to, this morning, take a look at the hypocrisy of the religious leaders for a time and then turn and look at the hypocrisy that can creep into our hearts that he warned about. And, you know, there's two ways I could have done this. I could have honed in on one specific area and really brought out some depth, perhaps, but I decided to cover the span of this, ask you some questions at the end of each one of Jesus' challenges, First of all, I'd like to present his challenge, and then I would like to present the truths that he gives in opposition to the challenge, that this is actually the truth. But then I want to ask you some questions. Now, remember, I've already asked myself these questions as I was writing them down for you. So they're hard questions. They're questions where you'll have to reach down inside and, and ask yourself, am I a hypocrite in any way, shape, or form here? Or is there... Um, uh, uh, am I at great risk for hypocrisy? I want you to think about this first. This is a parenthetical statement, just an apologetic uh, truth, I believe, that is inherent in this text. If Jesus was a fraud, don't you think he would rally the troops of the greatest play actors of his day to help him push over onto the common people, the ignorant, uneducated people, a new way of seeing the world? Don't you think he would appeal to those who were fake to help him pull this thing off? Think about this. In fact, he confronts everything that's called hypocrisy with truth. And as some today believe that this is all fraudulent, Jesus is calling for truth in his teachings. To me, that stands out as something you just you don't wave that off with your hand and say, well, Jesus, you know, we, we don't really know, you know, if he was a son of God. We don't really know um, if his disciples uh, made him God, as some teach today in our universities, how he became God to them. Just want you to think about that. So, but first of all, let's let's go to the uh, what we'll call the Academy Award winners for their play acting, the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, in chapter 11, beginning in about verse 37, is invited to a Pharisee's house for dinner. And uh, let's see, it's uh, verse 37 on, clear through the end of chapter 12. We're just going to highlight a few things in each chapter. He's invited to dinner. And we don't read ever about the dinner being served. I don't even know if they ended up eating. I don't think they did. That's just my opinion. You, you can read it and see for yourself. I don't think they did. Jesus comes to this Pharisee's house, first of all. Uh, we don't see that he's in company with his disciples. And I don't think he's in good company because all the Pharisees' colleagues are there. The scribes, the lawyers, that's all we read about sitting there and... What we know is that Jesus was there with a whole bunch of his enemies. Now, he's invited to dinner, but you decide whether or not he really was 
cordially invited to come and teach his doctrines at the table. He doesn't wash first. He just shows up to dinner. He's probably on time, but he didn't take a bath. And this word washing is the word baptizo, which would mean immersed himself. It's, it's not the ceremonial washing of the hands as you come in or a, or a foot washing of some sort. It's, he didn't take a bath. And all these Pharisees and scribes are showing up cleaned, well-groomed, you know. They're shaved and showered and smell fresh and they're coming to, ta- to dinner. I mean, we generally do that, I think, generally. When we're invited to dinner at people's homes, clean up first. And not a word is spoken. The Pharisee just in his mind is saying, he didn't bathe. And Jesus preemptively strikes, if you will. And he says, woe to you Pharisees. Wow. You know, welcome to my table, all right? Nice house you have here. Woe to you Pharisees. So Jesus begins with this denunciation in verses 39 and 40 that He says, the Pharisees, you Pharisees, you Pharisees, make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not He who made the outside make the inside also? He read the guy's mind and taught him some truths to expose his hypocrisy. That he believed at this moment when he invited Jesus Christ to his dinner table, that it was was more important that he would keep the, the oral tradition, the tradition of the Jews, their written law codes that they held in as high esteem as the Scriptures, arguably higher esteem than the Scriptures themselves. And Jesus said, there's something greater here, and you missed it already. This is the beginning of their table conversation. So first of all, the God who made the body made the soul also. And emphasizes the cleaning of the soul over the cleaning of the body. So in Jesus' mind, He's sitting here looking at a bunch of people whose souls are not immersed for the remission of their sins. So he's looking at unwashed men. They're looking at him, unwashed man. They're looking at his outside. He's looking at their inside. Truth number one to this is, one is greater than the other. And so he calls them out as hypocrites, prioritizing that which can be seen by men and demeaning that which is seen by God. Secondly, he said, here's what you ought to have done. You know, rather than worry about whether I'm washed or not and how you look and how you're dressed and what you're doing with your money today, rather, he says, you should give alms, verse 41, of such things as as you have, and then indeed all things are clean to you. Rather than being takers, you ought to be the ones who wield the greatest influence with your power and your position and your money, you ought to be the ones leading the way in giving and serving. It's going to be an interesting conversation from here on out, isn't it? 
But Jesus gets first crack at them here for a while. Then they, they turn the table a little bit. I have a question for you. Simply, do we worry more about outward appearances than inward? Do we worry, worry more about people seeing a, a clean appearance, um, a well-kept personage, than we do what people really know about us on the inside? Questions get harder as we go. Second question would be, do we hoard or do we give? If we're the richest people on the globe, arguably so, then should we be the greatest givers or are we hoarding? Verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. Verse 42. Truth number one. Men cannot see your inward thoughts and motives. Correct. But they can see your tedious obedience to the law and honor you for it. Wow. Look how carefully people would say, they obey God's laws. This is what they wanted to be seen. Passing by the greater things, which are things that concern their character, they do the things that men can notice that are the tedious details of their service. And if they can do the small things really, really carefully, then people will think they got the big things down. Uh, Amelia went to a, a youth meeting this weekend, and the, the theme was... Uh, keep the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I thought it was pretty funny. I had t-shirts with that on there. It's, it's cute, but wow, if you think about that, it's pretty cutting to the point. And Jesus is telling them here, the main thing I'm saying to you is to keep the main thing the main thing, and you're passing it by. Just like that parable of the Samaritan, right? The priest and the Levite passed by the main thing that God would want them to do that moment on that day. They passed it by, and it was the Samaritan, the one whom they would expect would, would say, I don't care about this person. They expected that. This was the person, he said, who got the main thing right. These, he said, you ought to have done. You ought to have tithed as God carefully commanded you. You ought to have tithed like this without leaving the other things undone. God clarified what the greatest commandments were. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Tithing was not one of those two. But Micah restated it in his day, to the Jews of his day, when he said, in Micah uh, 6, 2, he said, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What does the Lord require of you? Here's a summation statement. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You've passed by justice, Jesus just told them, and you've passed by the love of God, which is mercy, showing mercy. What about the third one? What about the third one where to walk humbly with your God? Well, he gets to that next, but first I have a couple of questions to ask. Do you do those things 
more easily which can be seen and might bring you glory than the things for which you will receive no glory. Another question concerning that second truth. Do we focus on or do we neglect the weightier matters of God's law? To love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself. Do we focus on those things or do we pass them by? Verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Truth number one. To correct them, earthly status will avail you nothing. Secondly, it's better to be greeted with a well done, thou good and faithful servant than rabbi, rabbi. Question. Are you striving to be something great for God or for yourself? Are you seeking approval from Him or are you seeking approval from your peers and colleagues? Which do you desire more greatly? Which do you put more energy, time, money into? The questions are getting harder, aren't they? Verse 44, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's laying into him, isn't he? He knew he didn't come for dinner. He He didn't come from dinner. This is the opposite of hypocrisy. If he would have sat around and small talked and all this stuff, he would have been acting like everything's okay. So actually what he's doing is a perfect example of what he's teaching. Let's just cut the small talk, fellas. Woe to you. Hypocrites, play actors. For you're like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Verse 44. Truth number one that needs to be known by these Pharisees and scribes is that the love of God should be clearly seen in you, not the love of men. Number two, the grace of Christ should be made available to you, not the religious traditions of men. What are we attracting people to? The gospel? Or our church tradition? What's what's the aim of how you would want to appeal to someone or affect someone? Is it with the gospel and the grace of God? Third, we are to be life-saving doctors with the gospel, not grave-digging undertakers. And so some questions. Do you attract people to God's grace or to a burdensome religion? When there is a conflict between God's will and your own, how often does God win? How often do people see God win out in your decisions? When there's a conflict of scheduling, timing, priorities, etc. Do people see God win? Or is He always the one that gets gets put behind, put on the back burner, set aside for my will to be done. And are you deep in the gospel? Or is the gospel a deep grave when people observe your faith? Do they 
walk toward you and your faith and fall into a grave of religiosity with no grace? Or can they come to you and find Christ the closer they come to you? What are you calling them toward? What are people seeing in you? Are they seeing an outward appearance, an outward of obeying of some of God's laws that are very apparent? For example, going to church. <laughs> Things that are very apparent to people that, that you can look and say, I'm seen this way. Or do they see the mercies of God at work in your life driving you toward humility to walk humbly with your God? Do they see those changes that are taking place in your life? If the scribes and Pharisees were the uh, Academy Award winners, then the support staff is not far behind. So, interestingly, you come down to uh, verse 46, verse 45, one of the lawyers is sitting by. And he's on to him and he says, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. Yep. <laughs> Truth number one. Yes. If the shoe fits, wear it. So it's interesting. As, as Jesus was exposing the hypocrisy of the, of, the, of the Pharisee who invited him in and the scribes who were setting a trap for him, the lawyer is sitting there going, I'm awfully uncomfortable. This sounds like he's talking about me. If the shoe fits, wear it. Woe to you, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Verse 46. First truth. When we love God and keep His commandments, it is not burdensome. If we tried to keep His commandments, it might be burdensome. But John said, this is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. If you're setting out to please God by keeping His commandments, good luck. You're always going to be burdened with your failures. But the love of God is to keep His commandments. That is, that is God's expression of love for you if you see it that way. It's not burdensome, John said in 1 John 5.3. Here's what's a burden. The wise man said, sin is a burden. The way of the sinner is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. Binding traditions is a burden. Binding religious traditions, not knowing the difference between the Scripture and God's law and the traditions, some of which we ourselves have. Tradition is okay if it's good. It's helpful if it's useful. Tradition is good. The way that we conduct a worship service, for example, the order of it, how where men stand and the, how we do things and whether we use a pulpit to speak and a microphone, all these things are traditionally that we're doing can be good, but when we bind something on men as part of the faith that is a tradition, this is a burden. And that becomes hard to bear. Because now we have God's commandments and we have the commandments of men, the commandments of men, and we're trying to keep them both. And Jesus said, I've come to set you free from that. 
The truth sets you free. The truth is found in the Word of God. It sanctifies you. It sets you free. I've come to let you go from that. So sin is a burden. So here's a question for you. How much of your burdens personally are from obeying God? You're obeying God and your life is burdened in that way. How, how much? It's, it's possible that because of your obedience to God, you're under some pressure or persecution. It's possible that some burden you're carrying is. So I'm not being facetious about that. How much of your life's burdens are from obeying God? How many of them are from obeying sin? Probably going to be lopsided towards sin. Sin, sin is much, much more burdensome. So the repercussions come. His uh, cut through the mustard approach here to get to the chase brings some heat. And now that things are out on the open and Jesus had His Word with them, it says, Luke writes in verse 53 and 54, that the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail Him vehemently and to cross-examine Him about many things. Cross-examine. Lying in wait for Him and seeking to catch Him in something He might say. See, He wasn't there for dinner, was He? I don't even know if He ate. But in the meantime, chapter 12, verse 1 says, as Mike read to us, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. This is a, this is a chaotic scene. People trying to come near Jesus to hear Him speak. They're trampling one another. That He began to say to His disciples now, so He's in a different setting likely. He's in a different setting. And He wants to take what has just happened at this dinner table and give them some warnings about what will happen when they stand for truth. What will happen. Here's one of the things that might happen. You might be affected by hypocrisy. Peter was. Do you remember Paul calling him out? About he, how he'd eat with the Gentiles until the Jews came around and then he'd act like he wasn't hanging out with the Gentiles? The book of Galatians, Paul calls him out on that. It's easy to do for every one of us. doesn't matter how mature you are in the faith either. Hypocrisy can creep in. It's like leaven in the bread. You don't actually spread that leaven in every single particle and element of that bread. You knead it in and the whole thing just rises with a little bit of kneading even. He said it's like that. You have to be careful about this. So he turns to his more vulnerable disciples and begins to prepare them. Now listen to how he deals with the disciples here. In verse 1, beware of the leavening. In verses 4 through 12, he says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, as Brad read at the table this morning, but fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell, Yes, I say to you, fear Him. Welcome to Realville. God is able to see through hypocrisy and cast you who have disqualified yourself from the kingdom to cast you into hell. God is able to do that. He's going to do that someday. So He tells them, 
The gospel event is at hand. I've already told you that the Son of Man is going to be arrested, he's betrayed, arrested, and led to a cross, but I'll be raised in three days. This is a reality. It's called the gospel. It's coming. It needs to change your life now. Don't worry about what people are thinking about you. Concern yourself with him who can cast you into hell. I think Jesus is preaching hellfire and brimstone here, don't you? To his disciples, to the choir? Yeah, to the choir. You're the ones who need to be the most careful about this because you're, you're saying, I am of God, I, I will follow you wherever you go, but you need to understand how easy this is to do. The first thing is fear. Fear of your life. It can cause you to be hypocritical. It's an enemy of the faith. It implies a couple of things. One truth is it implies that God is not sovereign, but, but man has the final authority over me. It implies that all things will ultimately, ultimately not come before God for a righteous judgment. All things will not be made right. So I'm afraid that I'll be wronged, I'll die, and my life will just end like that. He said that. That implies that, that God is just not in control, that He is not the, the judge of the world. The second thing it does is it separates you from faith. It's like oil and water. You're either faithful to God and unafraid, or you're in fear for your life at the hands of men. Some questions. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid to die? Do you fear rejection by your peers more than rejection from God? If you count your life dear to yourself, which Paul said, I do not count my life dear to myself. If you count your life dear to yourself, might you be in love with the world? Are you a pilgrim or a permanent resident of this world? How do you see yourself? Are you trying to establish yourself for permanency here? And will you do anything to hold on to it? Or do you see yourself as just a passing through? My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. And if a man kills me, let alone persecutes or mocks, mistreats me, will you fight for your rights to permanency and possession in this world? Or do you say, I'm just a pilgrim anyhow? These are indicators of whether we live hypocritically or not. So he goes on to say, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he taught this parable of the rich, foolish man. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully and he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I'll store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? 
So is he, Jesus said, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's the key. Who is not rich toward God. Beware of covetousness, of gaining possessions. But you know, here covetousness is not just the eagerness to gain more. This man was blessed. There was absolutely nothing wrong with him yielding a tremendous crop and saying to himself, I don't have enough room to store it. I certainly don't want it to go to waste. I'm going to have to build bigger barns. All this is fine until he came to the point where he said, I won't have to work anymore and I'll just ride out the rest of my life on this. And Jesus said, here's where this is wrong. This is wrong because you're not using those gifts that God gave you to bless other people with. And so this hypocrisy is seen in trusting in riches instead of in God. What it says is God's riches and God's promises of eternal life in heaven are not sufficient for me. I'll only be happy when I have more than enough to live on here comfortably the rest of my life. What message does that send to people? That God's promises really aren't that great. I like, I like my own promises. I promised myself I'd be successful. I promised myself I'd retire with ease. I promised myself I would be rich someday. And he says here, richness toward God is truth. True way to live. Don't worry about your life, verses 22 and 29, two times he says to them, nor have an anxious mind, nor have an anxious mind. Why? Because anxiety suggests that God is not beneficent, that, that the birds are fed without even having to, to plant seeds or, or harvest them, but God won't take care of you. That's what it says. When you're anxious and worried about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll wear, where you're going to live, what you're going to be doing. What you're saying is, I'm worried that God won't take care of me. And here the birds are flying around. They, they haven't spent a day of their life planting and sowing and reaping. He says, would you just look at that? How much more value are you than they? How much more? Anxiety suggests God is not able that maybe, maybe you believe God is not able to do this and, and you convey to people, I, I believe in God, I trust in God, but really you're living in such a way that shows that you don't believe that He's going to take care of you. It suggests worse that God is not willing. Anxiety, I think the worst is that God is not willing. But He says to him here, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And the last thing he says here to his disciples about being aware of, of, a, of a hypocritical double life, he said, Woe then is that faithful and wise steward, and blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, and faithfully serving. But if that servant says in his heart, My, my master has delayed his coming, He'll appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Chapter 12, verses 42 through 45. My master is delayed. It's been 2,000 years. People were mocking Peter for this in his second letter. 
In chapter 3, toward the end, he wrote about people mocking that Christ had not returned. Already in his day, think about that. Where is the promise of his coming? Keep talking about him coming back. Where is he? I mean, it's like 50, 60 A.D. It's 2016. What are people saying today? Where is the promise of his coming? You, know, you, you live like this, and, and if we're not careful, we can try to put up the front that I'm going to live like he's not coming so I can keep you all off my back and make you think actually I'm like you. But really, I'm going to try to put my faith in God. And he says, that's, that's hypocritical. That's play acting. First of all, we don't know when Christ is going to return. He could return today. Yes, definitely. It's been a while, but God has great hopes and expectations for the world. Secondly, we don't know when we're going to meet him, when we're going to go meet him. I might leave this world today before he comes back to get me. And so, in a very real way, Jesus taught Hypocrisy is acting like he's delaying in his coming. But you need to live like he's coming today. You need to live like he's coming today. Beware of the leavening of the Pharisees. He finished that chapter by saying you can predict the weather by looking at the sky and you can predict the temperature by, by which direction the wind is coming from. He said, but you can't detect that the Son of God is in front of you by the signs that I'm giving. You can predict the weather, but you can't predict the truth of God is in front of you. That my death and burial and resurrection, the gospel event, is the plan of God to save the world from their sins. And the signs are right in front of you. Folks, it's time to move to Realville. It's time to move to Realville. If the gospel is real and true... Jesus would say to us today, I'm confident, gathering us in, enjoying our company, our fellowship, our faith, I'm sure he would add the warning, beware of hypocrisy. Fear him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Don't fear losing your life. Don't fear losing possessions. In fact, give your possessions to those who have need. I know you would say this because he said it to his disciples then. This is a hard lesson to receive. These are hard questions to, to answer. But the greatest question today probably is, do I live hypocritically? At least in some ways. At least in some ways. Do you see the difference between living hypocritically and committing a sin? There's a difference. Am I trying to put on a, an untrue front? And what is that doing for the people around me? Is it showing them the reality of the gospel of Christ? That's a question for you. And to live true to God, He wants you to confess Jesus as Lord, put your faith and trust in Him, all of it, all that you have that you can put in Him. Even if it begins as a mustard seed, let it start there and have your sins washed away in the waters of baptism. I put that before you today. Let's stand and sing this song. And if you have need, you can come forward. I will sing of my Redeemer and His wondrous love to me on the cruel cross.
he suffered from the curse he set me free <coughs> sing of my redeemer with his blood he purchased me 